Hello, this is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your social media feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Whitney Terrell, author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. And I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, author of the novel Brotherless Night. And it's the week of Thanksgiving! Sugi, what are you doing for Thanksgiving? Napping. Relentless work. No, um, I think that there will be... <laughs> That's actually maybe true, um, but I, I think that there'll be some meals and family time and friend time and uh, reflecting on the history of this. That's so vague. I'm, Where are you? What are you am doing? I? I exist in the ether. Um, I am currently visiting my parents, but I will be back in Minneapolis um, in time for the long weekend next weekend, and we'll you know, do the, do the fusion Asian Where are your like parents? we do. My parents live in Maryland in an so undisclosed location. What is Thanksgiving? So, okay. So you're, I mean, you're a, your parents are first generation immigrants and you're a second generation immigrant. What does Thanksgiving mean to people who came here more recently than the people who Thanksgiving is about apparently? Um, I, I think, you know, like a lot of school kids of my age, I learned the usual problematic stuff in school. And now I think um, it's largely <laughs> like, do you want me to specify the specific problematic things? Well, I mean, you could mention it maybe if you'd like. I mean, I think the sort of the notion that um, all was all was swell and happy at Thanksgiving and that there was, you know, not anything um, genocidal or. That it was not or, a, yeah, not a prelude to genocide. OK, fine. Right. Yes. Um and I think now it's basically like logistically a moment when people can intersect. And so people intersect. Um, and, but we, there's a lot of non-traditional um, fusion food sometimes going on at, at the different tables. How about, how about you? What, what, what's, what sort of strange Kansas city tradition? Is it like barbecue? I mean, well, a barbecue, I think we should have a holiday that is just barbecue and that would be a lot less problematic for everyone, but no, we do very traditional you know, turkey stuffing, crazy cranberry stuff. We go to my aunt and uncle's house. Um, Wait, say more about you know, this. No, it's pretty straight. What is this crazy cranberry thing? I'm intrigued. No? Well, I mean, cranberry is itself an insane thing to eat. And then we only eat it, Americans, as far as I know, only eat it on Thanksgiving. My grandmother, uh, Bebo, uh, who's, uh, what's her nickname? Uh, used to. Have you seen the cranberry stuff that comes in like a a can? Not only have it, I you, have you I like seen that. Loop it out. My family loves that. Oh, it's so good. It's really. And good. we would cut into slices. Then she had this salad she would make. She put like uh, cottage cheese and other stuff on top, of it and we would eat it, and it was so excellent. I don't know why we never had it any other time of the year, but that's what we do. And that's it's something called, that's and one it, of our and the, and this ancient recipe is called crazy cranberry stuff. Well, that's what I call it. I, I see. Know. So I understand there's a lot of a lot of tradition like this mythology around uh, around Thanksgiving. I'm not going to get into how this whole th- turkey eating thing started, much less the bizarre uh, the cranberry, which I'm not a fan. That of. started with Bebo. That was how America <laughs> started eating cranberry. But you know, this entire holiday is somehow connected to the idea of white immigrants and Native Americans sitting down together to eat. Yeah, although, you know, again, problematic image. But yes, there are a number of earlier and probably more historically accurate claims about who exactly invented Thanksgiving. But the story you're referring to is modeled on the 1621 Harvest Feast shared by the English colonists of Plymouth and the Wampanoag people. 
Not that having one good dinner is an excuse for genocide. Not at all, but it does seem like this occasion is a good reason actually to hear from some outstanding Native American writers. So because it is Thanksgiving and Wit is headed to his uncle's house and I am at my parents' place in Maryland, we are going to rebroadcast an episode we did in 2019 with the Native American writers Brandon Hobson and Rihanna Yazzie. Our sound wasn't as good back then as it is now, so we apologize for that in advance. But the content and the things that these writers have to say is excellent, and we hope you'll enjoy it. Happy Thanksgiving. Joining us right now from the Twin Cities, Rihanna Yazzie, the founder of New Native Theater. Rihanna Yazzie is a Navajo playwright, but is also an all-around theater maker, a producer, director, and an actor, and a filmmaker based in Minnesota. Um, we love Minnesota. It's like my son's <laughs> ideal life right there. Um, she is a 2016-2017 Playwright Center's McKnight Fellow, a two-time Playwright Center Jerome Fellow, and a Playwright Center core member for three years. She's just finished her new play, Queen Cleopatra and Princess Pocahontas for a joint commission from the Oregon St a Shakespeare Festival and the Public Theater for American Revolutions, the United States History Cycle. This past January, she finished principal filming on her first feature film, A Winter Love, in which she is the writer, director, actor. Rihanna, welcome to the show. Hello, thank you. Thanks for having me on. Uh, you might be the first playwright, although you obviously do a lot of other things that we've had on the show. Um, not sure what took us so long to get a playwright on the show. How did you get your start in playwriting? I was one of these kids that um, was never discouraged to be creative in my family. Mm -hmm. So I, um, <clears throat> I was just always very t um, taken with uh, just sort of performing um, and f with theater. I just really loved it. And uh, I grew up in Albuquerque, New Mexico, for the most part. And um, and then I uh, I was encouraged to apply for a scholarship at uh, the University of New Mexico. And um, sorry, that's, that's your cat. We're gonna we're just gonna tell listeners that the cat is gonna be on the show. <laughs> The cat has its own uh, theater theatrical sense, and that's fine. Yes, yes. So um, I had a really fantastic playwriting professor. Um, I I got this really tiny scholarship. It was like four hundred dollars a semester if I stayed a, a theater major, and um, so I always say this: I, I I got into theater for the money. And, um, <laughs> I, That's why we're um, all in the arts. <laughs> I, so I, I just you know this playwriting professor. Um, his name was uh, Digby Wolf. He was one of the co-creators of Laughing, and oh, really? um, wow. he used to write uh, for Sunny and Cher and Smothers Brothers shows. And he, really, he just um, helped me discover the beauty and the craft of writing a play. And, and I, I've just always loved and respected the art form. Um, and, um, you know, just pursued it from there. Yeah. I wonder when you were talking about when very young, like how young, cause I just watched my nine year old spend the entire day making stop motion movies with Lego figures. Um, ah, cool. I don't know what you like. Were you at that age, like staging plays around the house? Like he, yeah, did? for sure. I was doing stuff like that all the time. I was always writing stories and, um, 
in eighth grade, I actually wrote a screenplay that my my class produced. Oh my god! <laughs> yeah, That's so cool. Yeah, and I think it still gets aired on uh, public public television in Albuquerque from time to time. So, and then I I um I also. I also was acting in that one, um, so I played uh, two evil twins. <laughs> <laughs> I really, really want to say that we're going to link to this in the show notes. <laughs> oh, God. I sincerely hope not. <laughs> well, we'll just show so, a picture of the VCR tape that that's on. Yeah, we can do that. We can do that. Yeah, look at all VHS. <laughs> oh, that's right, VHS. Sorry, I've been forgetting the acronyms now. I don't know. I love how like theater is, I don't know. It's the original, right? It's the total it, it, without, I can appreciate it when it has no technology. Um, and, and it also can have kind of all of those bells and whistles. And I've seen some amazing theater around here. And of course, new native theater is a twin cities institution. It's offered up this huge range of work, musicals and comedies. And you have the 10 minute play festival, which I remember you and I were talking about the last time I that know. I saw you. And, and New Native Theater is a decade old now. So how did you decide to found it and to support other Native theater artists in that way? Because it's explicitly part of the mission to make theater not just by Native artists, but for Native audiences. So what brought you to that? Well, I think um, when I look at my experience just as a person who watches theater, watches film, um, I had the, you know, grow, I mean, growing up, I, I just never saw any of my experiences reflected back to me. I, I never knew what it was like to be a native, you know, an, a young native person who had her first kiss or had to make decisions or, you know, any of these myriad of stories that, you know, that you find in the regular media that, you know, sort of now are sort of like, surrogate of um how do we become humans now so we're always taking this kind of media it becomes a piece of us um and so i really felt like as a native person i was missing out on that really vital experience of how to um how to become a person in the world that i was living in so um i you know i'm writing stories for something that i would want to see that i would want to um um you know, sort of learn about a piece of my humanity. So, and, and I feel like with all the, the time it takes to put together a play and, and the resources and the hours, I just feel like it's better used on reaching Native people to help because I really believe that stories can shift personal narrative. I really believe that um, stories have the ability to change the condition um, that a person is living in, and it can change society. It, I, you know, and that's the beautiful power of art. And so I want to see that power harnessed um, for Native audiences. And um, so that's why we focus on stories that are unique to the Native experience that Native people won't be able to see anywhere else. Um, as opposed to focusing on trying to shift society by focusing on telling uh, educational stories for non-Native people to learn about Indians. When I came to the Twin Cities on a Jerome Fellowship, there were other um, uh, four other writers, and they came from Juilliard, Columbia, and Brown. Um, two of them came from Brown. And... <clears throat> 
And here I was with this amazing opportunity at this extremely well-recognized place where if you get a fellowship there, you are a legit playwright. You can make a career as a playwright. And I couldn't develop my plays because I could not get the same actors. Um, I couldn't get the I couldn't get the craft from the community that I was writing about as the other playwrights. They could write about anything, and and there were actors and directors with that same experience and and high level of craft. And so that's how New Native Theater ended up happening. It was sort of a, a combination of me trying to workshop these plays, um, tell these stories, and and then also, you know, t- talent scouting. And and I tr- I have this deep belief that everything I do, I I, uh, I do it, I do it to change the better, you know, for the better native people. And, you know, it's, a, it's, um, I don't know, maybe, maybe it's a crazy thing to think I can do, but, um, so every opportunity I ever got, I just sort of turned back, turned it around, found a way that I could bring in, uh, and mentor other people into the process. And, um, and that's how new native theater started. <laughs> So we were looking up a few of the issues that were animating the protesters in D.C. who showed up for the Indigenous People's March, and there's a long list, uh, the border wall, the, the Dakota Access Pipeline, Standing Rock, violence against Native women, and climate change, and the new Brazilian president's decision to strip Indigenous Brazilians of autonomy over their lands. It's a huge collection of important issues, and yet it seems like the march maybe wouldn't have received much mainstream attention without that controversy over the boys from Covington Catholic. Yeah. It seems to me almost like there's a kind of uh, metaphor there that's similar to what's you're working with, with your theater. Like, how do I get people to t- pay attention to this for the issues themselves rather than some kind of uh, viral meme that's going to make people pay attention, but also sort of obscure the real issues in a way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So when I was reading over, I was reading over your work and, and I should say um, a lot of Rihanna's, some of Rihanna's plays are, were accessible in, in my um, university library and I was reading over some of the older ones and um, it was really interesting to see the ways in which history and politics appear and I wonder um, how that is manifesting itself in your work now um, or how it has presented um over the past 10 years at New Native Theater, what role politics has played or, or hasn't played? Is there a commonality between that list that I recited and things you've been following here in Minneapolis? Well, I um, I always defer to what it is, you know, what the zeitgeist in the community is, what people want to um, want to write about, what they want to talk about. Um, and yeah, uh, Minneapolis is an extremely political Native community. I've, I've lived in three uh, significant Native communities in my life, um, in New Mexico, in Los Angeles, and here in, here in Minneapolis, Twin Cities. And, um, you know, by far, I, I feel like um, the Native community in Minneapolis is just extremely, extremely political for very very good reasons. Um, they have a different history with the colonial state and, um, um, and also, you know, 
the American Indian movement was founded here. There, the stakes were different. Um, language loss and culture loss, things like that were, um, uh, were being threatened at a even higher rate than, um, than say, for instance, the community that I was uh, born and raised in the, you know, my tribe's Navajo. And for the most part, um, you know, we have, we have, um, language speakers and we have our ceremonies and, you know, my, my grand, I have my grandmother, she's 95 and, um, you know, so, so I, I mean, yeah, when you take a look at the plays that we produce and especially I, you know, taking a look at our 10 minute play festival, it's a real opportunity to see like what are native people thinking in the moment right now. And, um, Yeah. And I mean, issues come this year. um, Violence against women was a really big topic. Uh, Quite a few writers chose that as a subject. And um, and we produced three plays that um, that dealt heavily with that subject. Um, We we're currently in production. Before um, you go on to that next mm -hmm. thing, could you because this is so perfect because what we're trying to do is surface some of these things that we feel like got obscured you know sure like what that march was really about so could you could you go tell us those plays so if if listeners want to go look them up or find out about them they can yeah so so a lot of the work so the work that new native theater does is um we do conventional play development right um by native authors whether it's new play development or plays in the canon we also do devised works so in the spring we did a devised work play called native woman the musical and in that show we had we had women telling their own personal stories with a musical twist about what happened in their lives how music touched them um, in a moment of healing and so many of these stories had to do with sexual assault um, or physical abuse, um, overcoming um, addictions. Um, there was a woman who was incarcerated at, um, at the Shakopee Women's Prison, and she wanted to participate in the play. And the only way we could get her to participate was over the phone. So, um, so she told her story, and she sang a song talking about... Um, what seems to be this sort of like vulnerable factor about native women and of course we know that there's extremely unfairly high rates of native women who go missing uh, every year and um, native women who are murdered and um you know it's uh it's it's a really it's a really difficult fact that i think the rest of the rest of the world can pretty much ignore but if you are living in a native community you know you are going to encounter people who've had these experiences two two of the women in that play um talked about um experiences of being um sex trafficked um and that is just not something that i've ever heard ever encountered anybody in any other part of the theater that I've ever worked in, um, bring up. It's just, it's just not a part of anyone else's experience, it seems, um, you know, but ours. And it was, you know, know, they say that three out of five native women, um, have had some form of, uh, sexual assault. Um, and here we had 12 women telling a story. And the wonderful thing about it though, 
is here you can tell these stories like that in in the form of theater, but at the end, it, it's ultimately extremely celebratory because, you know, when I look at the process of theater, it really is about the process when I think about Native community. It's not ever about, like, the end product. So, so at, because I'm focusing on process, and I, I direct the majority of New Native Theater's pieces, I just have this sort of... Um, uh, learned and intuitive sense of how do you caretake for these stories? How do you keep them in context? How do you how do you ha- allow the person who's telling the story their full humanity while they're telling something that's tragic? Um, and then how how do you show that that is not all that defines them? How do you show that it is? Um, really just like this beautiful building block of who they are and just shows how deeply resilient our community is. And ultimately at the end of the show, you're just like full of this like celebration of like life. Um, I mean, over my career as a playwright, I can't even tell you the number of artistic directors, mostly I think of white men (laughs) who, who said, you know, I'd pitch an idea or something and, and it would be like, I don't know that our audiences are ready for that. Whereas here at New Native Theater, our audiences are ready. <laughs> okay, we're going to take a short break here and we'll be right back. And this is why, I mean, I think, you know, we asked a question about sort of, um, you know, why theater? And it's so, I mean, everything you're describing is so collaborative um, and also kind of is according importance to different roles, including the audience. And, you know, on this podcast, we've talked a fair amount to different writers about, you know, um, the pressures that they feel or don't feel about audience, um, the way in which, you know, they go on book tour and get questioned about who are they writing for. And here it's actually so clear. And there's actually, right, there's a physical space for it. Also, talking about collaboration, uh, I found this quote from this S.A. Lawrence I think it's Welch, who was the social media coordinator for the Indigenous Peoples Movement. And she had this quote I read in some of the news coverage of it, of the event itself. She said, we have no tokenized leadership. It's all of us. That was her talking about that movement. And it struck me as such a different way of thinking about leadership than, say, having a president or a speaker of the House who's supposed to, you know, talk for everybody, you know. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Yeah, um, I mean, and I and I I think that it, it is that sense of consensus. It's it's that sense that like you can't really make a decision without like the rest of the community like being affected by it and and telling you <laughs> how they feel about it. You know, I mean, I feel like that that sort of normal in native community is like you're just not encouraged to um, speak for other people. You know, it really is about like finding and giving voice to all of these different individuals. Um, and, you know, I, I mean, the thing is, it's like, you know, I mean, it, it's, it's just deeply embedded indigenous value to, to you know, that that democracy. Of, we have to like, be patient to do that because you, uh, right. you told us you just got back from like a three or four hour community meeting, didn't you? <laughs> yes, 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 actually, yes. Yeah, Um yeah, and, and and that was the thing. Everybody has a turn to speak. Everybody needs to voice their concerns. Um, and and then, you know, you need that mo- those moments of, like, silence and reflection on what people have said. Well, Rihanna, it would be great to hear you read from some of your work uh, before we talk about too much more here, if you... <laughs> 
you guys had mentioned, I've, I've written a play, Queen Cleopatra and Princess Pocahontas, um, and uh, for the Public Theater and Oregon Shakespeare Festival, I I ended up finding out that um, Pocahontas has a sister named Cleopatra, and so I am telling the alternate story, the Pocahontas story, with uh, her her older sister as the lead character, who was a real person. So um, she was uh, she was called Cleopatra by the English, but her real name was Madachana. And so this is uh, sort of like after the prologue um, takes place in um, <clears throat> in 1640. 1642 and um we are we are in massachusetts and the main character is an indentured servant um and we will soon find out later in the play that she is actually the sister the um the sister of pocahontas who was actually in my opinion much more pivotal woman who was lost to history so here she is with um um Lights up, um, Madachana holds a white cat. The cat's portrayed by a white spotlight, and she has a clutch of papers. She's in the middle of a huge argument with Sarah, a pilgrim, white, 20, 20 years old, who calls her by the name Cleopatra. You will not go, Cleopatra, Cleopatra. My document is recognized by English law. It says I am free. I will not again work for an English. Put that cat down, Cleopatra, nasty creature. Madachana, where I'm from, a young person does not speak to her mother so. She doesn't put the cat down. Instead, she holds on to it throughout the entire scene. Sarah, but you are not. No, I'm not a blood relation. I often forget how we see things so different. Though I lived in your house, tilled your soil, prepared your food, listened to and advised you on all your concerns, and when you as a child repeatedly wiped your... You were my father's indenture, our servant. Your duty was to fulfill your responsibility to my family, and in turn, we have provided for your body and mind in all ways. Have we not? As the Grandmother Earth provides for you and for all of us, does she not? Grandmother Earth, an Indian spirit, Father God created all for man. I know not of this Grandmother Earth. You only create distance between yourself and me by insisting on believing such things. I find it difficult to change myself so that I can be understood by you. I must leave. I know it now more than ever. Sarah sneezes. That rascal beast cat. Madachana cards the cat. No matter where you go, it is the father that will decide where your soul will spend eternity, English and Indian alike. Of all things I have come to learn about English, I know your words mean not the same as mine. Soul and eternity how can we explain to each other the true meaning of those words in each of our hearts? Cleopatra, I have never heard you speak more words to me at one time, and I wish you could hear them. I must be on my way. You will not. You know I am free. Your father's wishes were written plainly in his will. I'm leaving. You will not, Cleopatra. And I think we can maybe stop there. Thank you so much for that, Rihanna. What a great exchange, and I love having you read your work and do all the voices. That's just fantastic. Um, and really fascinating history as well. When I was doing the research for this play, I was really interested in understanding that clash in original, that original clash of like worldview. And so um, 
I'd always sort of like tried to understand my experiences as a native woman. Like, why do I always kind of feel like I'm looking at the world totally different than a lot of other people? And and I really finally, through the process of writing this play, just was able to finally articulate it and, and found out just these really wonderful things that we take for granted as modern Americans that are really, really indigenous ways of interacting in the world. Like, for instance... The mere fact that we're not talking over each other, that we're taking turns to hear each other, that's actually something that was that Europeans learned from native people. And, um, you know, when they were putting um, Thomas Jefferson... Well, Sugi doesn't think that I've literally learned that yet. So <laughs> well, I'm yeah, working on it. Well, yeah, and it's true. Um, depending, depending on which native communities you go to, um, some places... Like, for me, okay... I, I'm Navajo. <laughs> I, I have these certain traits of being Navajo that I will never, never live, live down. And, and one of them that was super deeply entrenched in me as a child, my father would say over and over, it's like, you need to hear everything that, that is being said before you open your mouth and say, and have a thought, you need to get this full understanding of things. Hmm. And, and so that's kind of how I interact in the world. And like um, when I would go to other cities, you know, I also just remember like moving to Minnesota and like I was talking with other native people and I, I, um, I was always shocked that they interrupted me. <laughs> <laughs> I was always shocked. Um, and I was just like, you hear that, Minnesota? Come on, stop interrupting her. <laughs> but now, now I, you know, I'm acclimatized. <laughs> I'm acclimatized to Minnesota, and that's sort of like, you know, it's because, you know, it, it was a different colonial settler history. You know, it was the specifics of that were really different, right? So, so I go out into the world expecting Native people to act like Navajo people. You know, but but the thing is, Ojibwe's are going to act differently than you know than Lakota and Dakota people, and and then like just native folks you're just encountering, you know, like in the cities. So, um, but that's that's a that's a deep worldview difference, you know, and and why we don't we don't in Congress speak like like they do out in Parliament in in Britain, you know, where they're yelling over each other. Like it was an intentional. Um, protocol that the you know thomas jefferson and benjamin franklin these dudes <laughs> said you know what maybe we should do it like the indians and let uh let one person speak at a time <laughs> <laughs> i have also many thoughts on the midwest and interrupting but that's like a whole other episode <laughs> oh really yeah that would be an entire episode that'd be cool i'd like to be part of it <laughs> i just felt like yeah i mean that's what interesting history right um to think about the ways that our the ways that our government talks to each other and that the fact that that protocol right is actually that's one of the things that's eroding now right yeah. um that that um consideration which of course it's it, it makes a lot of sense that it would come from like from native ways of being and native ways of communicating um and i found that when i when i moved to the midwest i am an east coast active listener which is that i say a lot of uh-huh and really, while you're while you're oh, saying sure, things, sure. 
but this and yeah and then in the midwest i realized that my impression was that fewer people interrupted but um but yeah i guess <laughs> well, i'm I guess the apple host so like nobody <laughs> talks <laughs> i love this i i love that your delineation of what are the specific navajo traits and how they're different that to me i, I could uh, we, we could go on with that for quite some time what, yeah get, for sure i, I have a quick sure. uh, do you have any impression this the Impressions? The, um, Let's see. No. I can do a good Catherine <laughs> Oh wait! <laughs> I forgot she's an actor. Okay, right. I got that. No, no, I meant impressions of the the pe- uh-huh. the the Native American people that I spent the most time with and have worked with the most were the Haida and Klingit in uh, Southeast Alaska, who were I used to work in the fishing industry up there. Um, so I don't know if you've encountered those people or or how they're different from Navajo, or if they have any particular traits that everyone's like, oh, the Haida are like this. I've never met anyone who's Haida, but they certainly have a very, um, for, I don't know, uh, a big reputation, at least for me, because they were like, they had these, they were like Vikings, you know, that's probably like the worst thing to compare them to, but they were just like these, these warriors on these enormous boats and they would come, come to the villages. And, um, so I think of Haida people as very like, Oh my God, they're so, yeah, I, I probably would think they're very sexy if I met them. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I also have worked with, um, uh, I just recently was working with a wonderful, wonderful Yupik um, musician, Asik uh, Kairurak, and I'm pronouncing his last name wrong, but I can give you a link. And, but he reminded me so much of what it felt like to be at home in a Navajo family because um, his interactions um, uh, really just sort of, it reminded me of that sort of like um, um, really slow taking of turns to, to speak and to process what each other has said. Um, so I, I do I do feel like there, there are quite a few commonalities. And then, of course, he was saying, like, ah, oh, Rihanna, you need to come home. Because in his narrative and in the narrative of some northern people, the Clinket is, because uh, they're, they're part of an Athabascan-speaking group, um, they say that Navajo people left that area and went down to the Four Corners area. But we say that... Um, a group of us left and went up there because there's a language. Uh, so Navajo language, Dinebazad, then there's a native, a community, um, a tribe up in Canada called Dine. And, and apparently our languages are, are, you know, you can, you can speak to each other and understand everything. So oh, I, I so had, amazing. Yeah. I totally did not know that. Yeah. Yeah. So he was teasing me like, oh, Rihanna, you need to come home. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. We're going to take a short break here and we'll be right back. So you were just at this um, community meeting, and I'm curious about your relationship to activism, the kind that was going on in D.C. around the Indigenous Peoples March, and you know if you knew anyone who went to it or if you um, participated. And I know there was a solidarity event in Bemidji. I mean, it's uh, it's it's really hard. It's really hard because um, I think that as a Native person. Um, 
I feel that there is a deep expectation to engage in activism, and I feel like uh, with the artwork that we make, that it needs to be deeply engaged with the um, with social justice and cultural issues, and um, you know, and in the plays that get written, um, th those are the subjects that people um, talk about um, because because you know people's friends, their cousins, their brothers and sisters, you know, they they're all there on the front lines of, of these protests, and I mean, like for instance, when Standing Rock happened, like everybody I knew in Minnesota went up there and somehow, some way, um, and, you know, New Native Theater, we went up there and we performed a couple of plays and it was the best damned audience we ever had. Um, oh, wow. because it was like, oh yeah, this is the community we are making our work for. And, um, it was just the most powerful experience. And, um, well, thanks so much for letting us, uh, talk to you. And joining us on the podcast, Rihanna. Yeah, well, thank, thank you so much yeah. for asking me. And, you know, so, sorry about the cat stuff. And I, I know there was, <laughs> there was purring throughout, too. Um, but she's calmed down. She's curled up like a bean right here next to it. Aw, next time, <clears throat> next time we will say podcat and we'll have her record with This week, the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast is totally stoked. <laughs> I can't say that. <laughs> you can say that. We're stoked. All it's right. true. This week, the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast is totally stoked to be uh, sponsored by The Great Courses Plus. Anyone who's listening to this podcast understands the role of literature and books, and also like the how beautiful it is to listen to a great lecture on a topic um, that you're interested in. Um, we don't lecture that much, Sugi and I, but we are trying to, you know, bring forward the past and past literature and bring it to bear on the present. And this is what The Great Courses Plus does. It's a streaming service. You've got in-depth uh, information and lectures on just like anything you want to pick. One particular lecture that, that we want to emphasize this week is The Secrets of Great Mystery and Suspense fi Fiction. Sugi, take it away. So we have been enjoying the heck out of these 36 lectures on the secrets of great mystery and suspense fiction. So there is lectures on the lady detective, the Latino detectives at the border, the dime novel, and I know that our listeners enjoy a page turner and understand the importance of um, following the trail and the range of these lectures is pretty cool and there's also just a lot of them so plus we've asserted Sugi that all fiction is crime fiction that is the name true. of one of our episodes with Matt Johnson this is pretty much right in the wheelhouse of of um, fiction nonfiction listeners there's so much to discover on the great courses plus we have a special limited time offer for our listeners which is one month of unlimited access to the whole library of lectures, not just this course, but all of the ones in there for free for one month. Do you know what I found in that library? What did you find? Do you know what I've been listening to? Like, with passionately all week? I'm almost afraid to know. The, <laughs> the Life of Franz Liszt. Freaking You're amazing. In... He's the, like, the Mick Jagger of the piano. You're he, a huge dork. He had the most <laughs> insane life. He had all these crazy affairs with noble women. He was born in Hungary. He was from a lower class family. He worked his way up. He decided to become a monk at one point. He just, 
He, his daughter married Wagner. It's insane. It's like a soap opera. Gotta check it out. And how can you check it out? How can you listen to The Life of Franz Liszt or Secrets of Great Mystery and Suspense Fiction? After listening to our All Fiction is Crime Fiction episode, you can go now to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash lithub. That is thegreatcoursesplus.com slash lithub. And now we are excited to welcome Brandon Hobson. Brandon is the author of four books, including most recently, Where the Dead Sit Talking, which was a finalist for the 2018 National Book Award. He has won a Pushcart Prize, and his work has appeared in magazines such as The Believer, The Paris Review Daily, Conjunctions, Noon, Post Road, and in many other places. He is an enrolled citizen of the Cherokee Nation Tribe of Oklahoma. Welcome, Brandon. Thanks for having me. So, Brandon, your novel, Where the Dead Sit Talking, came out almost exactly a year ago, and your most recent book before that, Desolation of Avenues Untold, is set in Texas and centers on some missing and possibly mythical porn tapes of Charlie Chaplin. Deep Ellum, which came out in 2014 from Calamari Press, has been connected in reviews to Catcher in the Rye, a favorite of mine. So was Where the Dead Sit Talking your first fiction that addressed your Cherokee heritage? It is. Those other books, the earlier ones, are, are more experimental, I think. And um, so I didn't, you know, there's nothing necessarily, um, uh, you know, Oklahoma uh, related or, and certainly not Native American uh, related at all. But The Desolation of Avenues Untold was uh, my dissertation, and I wanted to do something more experimental. I also wanted to, um, I, I want to uh, write different books that have different aesthetic um, uh-huh. to them so that, so that you know, not every book uh, follows the same sort of style, um, prose-wise, and uh, you know has um, you know just just a wide aesthetic to it. Not everybody does that, you know. I know, I know. <laughs> I mean, I can think I of a few people. Maybe one is somebody. I mean, I, I was going to ask you, um, Stuart Onan uh, blurbs uh, where the dead sit talking, and I think you guys also studied together. And he's somebody who has a really wide range of style ability yeah he was a teacher of mine for a little while when when i was uh, younger and and um of course he was young you know at the time and and starting out and um i remember having conversations about you know different uh, different types of uh, writing styles and people being sort of um you know lumped into one you know realist um one minimalist you know or or maximalist you know um and um, so I've always, uh, you, you know, wanted to to be someone who um, isn't lumped into one school, I guess we could say. Um, so, you know, that that's always been. Um, I, I think it's a challenge, you know, but it's, uh, yeah, it, it's fun. So the book's main character, Sequoia, inhibits this kind of like liminal state. You know, um, his Native American friends often think of him as as white. His the white characters, you know, think of him as Native American. Um, was this an intentional move on your part? I mean, why did you choose to put him in that position? What I was interested in with Sequoia was writing about identity. And so part of that means him exploring his frustrations with people and himself, seeing himself as, am I native or am I, am I white? Um, also, you know, there are questions of, his um, gender. That question I was interested in exploring had to do with 
identity and maybe metamorphosis, which, you know, might be part of what goes through most characters, you know, going through a sort of metamorphosis, I guess. But I mean, because people do that. Right. And certainly t- teenagers, I mean, go through this. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, teenagers. I have a remember, thirteen-year-old right now. <laughs> yeah, right. Go through this idea of you know who am I? Um, what group do I fall into? Um, is it okay if I dress like this or if I look like this? And yeah, those are really the the teenage questions. You know, the, those are the ones that I was most interested in exploring. So Sequoia also spends most of the book after his mother goes to jail as a foster child to a white couple and. And I was really interested in the portrayal of the foster care system and Sequoia's experience. And did you always know that you wanted to address that system and portray it? And was that something you discovered as you were writing? I always wanted to, from the very beginning, because I'm, um, I wanted to write about abuse. I wanted to write about underrepresented, uh, underrepresented communities. I wanted to write about specifically um, uh, foster kids. Um, and that comes out of my interest in social work. And I, I actually was a social worker for seven years. Oh, and so I didn't know that. I worked with um, deprived kids, um, some of whom were uh, locked up um, and were on probation, others who were in foster placement. So I did that from, um, you know, 99 to 06. I did, you know, seven years there where, uh, I mean, I just every single day was, you know, was, was dealing with, with these kinds of things. And so it, it really came out of that. And, and, you know, I wanted to, to, to write about that world. A lot of, uh, I, you know, I'd say a lot of indigenous books are, you know, it might be set more on the reservation and having to deal with that sort of, you know, reservation life and, or leaving the reservation. And, and, and so I, you know, I just wanted to kind of have a different sort of angle to it and talk about, um, well, you know, here's a here's a here's a Native American uh, teenage boy who's placed in with a um, non-Native family, and uh, which happens, you know. I mean, occasionally, you know, the Department of Human Services has a, uh, um, you know, can um, have contracts with certain tribes that where they, you know, are able to to take in uh, Native kids, and um, that's okay with the tribe, you know, through a contract. Um, so, you know, that, that does happen. Um, and so I, I just wanted to, you know, I just felt like it was a good time. It was, it was just really on my mind a lot. I was thinking about it a lot, so I wanted to write about it. Was that in Oklahoma when you were working with the... Yes. Okay, because I'm just, yes. you know, very nearby in Kansas, you know, the foster care system is a total disaster in shambles, and they were losing kids because it had been so grossly underfunded by the governor, Brownback, who'd cut so many social programs during his time there. Um, were, were there similar, like, what, what was the condition of the foster care and, and shelter system in Oklahoma when you were working in it? And it's, it's, it's incredibly sad, and it's really difficult to, to work in. Um, I don't think that it's appreciated. The, the workers, social work in itself is not appreciated. I can only speak about, you know, Oklahoma. I, I guess it's probably like this around the country, but especially in Oklahoma, um, you know, I, you know, being underpaid, social workers are extremely under uh, underpaid, as teachers are, and uh, the, you know, youth shelters and foster uh, families, good ones, are hard to find. They don't pay shelter workers very well. Um, sometimes the conditions are not all that great. 
Uh, and that being said, the people that you find working in social work are mostly, you know, really, really amazing people that care a great deal about wanting to, um, you know, help people. Yeah, Liz um, seems like a nice character. She is. And she, you know, Liz is um, a lot like a, a lot of young uh, caseworkers um, that, you know, they just, they're trying to to help uh, a kid get a better life. So you mentioned uh, Sequoia in the book explores his gender identity. And I think this is something that's rising to the forefront of American discourse right now, especially with the president's push, push to ban transgender soldiers um, from the army. But I wonder how much this has appeared in literature dealing with Native American characters. Has that um, been something that's been part of the storytelling tradition, or is this something you were trying to disrupt? It's something I'm trying to do because I don't feel like it's been talked about enough. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I think it is starting to get talk about, talked about more. And I've seen articles, uh, you know, uh, um, certainly around Oklahoma, you know, um, uh, ex uh, examining transgender uh, Native community. And there are a lot of transgender Natives, uh, at least here. Um, and, and everyone has a story. Why aren't their stories be, you know, being told? And so, um, absolutely, that was a big part. I mean, again, that goes back to the earlier question of identity. I think a big part of Sequoia's identity, other than exploring his, you know, seeing himself as a native, a full native, um, uh, you know, this also the idea of um, what is what is his gender, right? And I think what all that you know also falls under the the question is an umbrella of what is what is home, and that's a question that I always I'm always interested in. Um, what is home for Sequoia because he's shuffled from shelter to shelter, from foster placer to to foster placement, um, and um, well, I was t I was talking to uh, the filmmaker Sterling Harjo. I don't know if you've ever seen any of his films. He's a native uh, a filmmaker here in Oklahoma, um, and and we were talking about that question. He explores that question in in his films. Um, and we'll put some uh, we'll put some links to those in the uh, show notes for the for the yeah podcast. please. Please do. He's um, yeah, he's an amazing. Uh, he's an Oklahoman as I am. Uh, filmmaker is a friend of mine. And what's your favorite? Um, his latest, you know, Miko. His latest one is really, really good. Uh, I would say um, that one or Barking Water is also really good. Okay. Um, so either of those. Okay, we're gonna take a short break here, and we'll be right back. Yeah, it's really interesting to think about the ways that displacement um, affects all of the sort of identity formation, especially for a kid, right? And it seems like mm -hmm. so frequently displacement is the is the experience that is, I mean, it's the sort of overarching um, narrative of indigenous persons or people of color or whatever. And, it's, and that's a narrative that can be complicated in so many ways and then often isn't, mm -hmm. um, as you say, that, that that hasn't been 
it's interesting that that hadn't been explored in, in quite this way. I wonder if you would read a passage to us from the book. Sure. <clears throat> Just to give an overview of the book, uh, Sequoia is, has moved into uh, this foster placement with uh, both parents who are non-native, but they have two other foster teens living with them, uh, George, uh, who is autistic, and then uh, a girl, an older girl named Rosemary, who's 17, which again, Sequoia right from the beginning tells us that uh, Rosemary died right in front of him. Um, and she throughout talks about suicide. She talks about how difficult her life has been. And Sequoia and Rosemary really connect on this very spiritual level, you know, where they talk about, they feel like they can communicate um, on, a, on a level that goes beyond, you know, verbal language. And so uh, in, in some ways he, he idolizes Rosemary so much that also dealing with his, these questions of gender, he wants to look like her. He really wants to in some way become her. So I'll read just a short section um, that explores that. I asked not to be disturbed and went upstairs to be alone in my room. I stopped at Rosemary's door in the hall and picked the lock. I already had a story that I was looking for a specific drawing she did in case someone came upstairs and caught me. I went to her closet where there was hosiery on the floor. I picked up pair of black hose, wadded it up, and slipped it into my pocket. I don't recall why exactly I did this. I knew I wouldn't wear it. Maybe I wanted to keep an article of her clothing close to me, and a pair of hose seemed arbitrary enough that maybe she wouldn't miss it, like a sock. I pulled off my t-shirt, then my pants. I stood in her closet in my underwear, running my hands over her clothes, her skirts and jeans, her shirts, her sweaters and jackets. In the closet mirror, I saw myself standing there, thin as a rail. The burns on my face swelled in the reflection like a bad disease. I was not attractive, was neither handsome nor charming in any way. Had I tried on any of her clothes, I would have been disappointed because I would never have a body like Rosemary's. Standing there, I considered pulling all her clothes from their hangers and covering myself with them like blankets. I wanted to sleep on the floor of her closet, among the clothes and shoes and tiny boxes and loose hangers on the floor. Such a small space brought safety, comfort. I recall a few things specific to this moment. I recall the dizzying atmosphere in the space, how beautiful and isolated and psychedelic it all felt, as if I were living inside the body of Ziggy Stardust or some obscure, coke-snorting, heroin-shooting, glam rock star from the 70s. I recall the urge to vomit and thrust myself into the wall. I recall the desire to become someone else completely. I wanted to put on these clothes, then immediately had an impulse to tear them from the hangers and rip them to shreds, stretch the fabric and stomp on them like fire. I felt high, but I wasn't high. Slowly then, 
I pulled on my shirt and jeans. I left the room, locking the door as I closed it. I just love that passage. Um, oh, thank you. All of these, I mean, the clothing does so much. There's like grief and mm. gender and just solace. Um, it's just mm. beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, Thank you. So I know that, you know, the earlier books we mentioned were set in Texas, but where the dead sit talking is set in Oklahoma. And you've mentioned Oklahoma a couple of times in our conversation already. And, you know, that state has particular resonance for anyone who's from the Cherokee Nation tribe of Oklahoma as you are. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that sense of place and your personal connection to the state. And you studied writing at Oklahoma State University and and your history there. Um, There's really not a lot to say. Uh, I've never been anywhere else, really. I mean, I'm... Well, then there should be a ton to say. (laughs) (laughs) I, you know, everybody you know, goes off to school, um, you know, out of state, it seems like, but I, I, I did not. I, I grew up, um, in Oklahoma and I've, I've stayed here my whole life. Um, these, these earlier books that, you know, they, the small press and I, I don't know anybody even really read them. So, I mean, you know, this feels like in a way it feels like a first novel to me because, you know, people, um, have actually, I think, are actually reading it, you know. So, um, so it's it's really interesting that, uh, you know, that writing about something so close to you, um, if that creates a wider audience, I don't know. You were mentioning to me before mm-hmm. we started about how, you know, you feel like Oklahoma gets sort of its history and its relationship with the Trail of Tears gets elided by just being considered like another red state, a Republican state. Right. Um, and uh, I wondered if you could talk about that some. Yeah. Um, and the history, you know, that's peculiar, that's particular to the Cherokee Nation in Oklahoma, just in case our listeners don't know. Well, it, Oklahoma, before it became a state, was called Indian Territory. And so, you know, there are a lot of tribes in the state here. We have a very large Native American population. Um, and uh, so, the, you know, the, the five civilized tribes, there are also, you know, numerous other tribes. Where I live, uh, there are five tribes right around me. What are the five tribes and where do you live? I live in a town right now called Ponca City um, in the Ponca tribe. Uh, is here. Um, and I teach in a town called Tonkawa. Um, and there's a Tonkawa tribe, right? The Osage, you probably heard of Osage County because of the the David Graham book, maybe. Um, there's a Fort Osage know. here in Kansas City, actually, that's near, yeah, on the Missouri River. Right, right. So Osage County, um, you know, the Osage tribe is, is right there. And uh, uh, the Oto, uh, you know, so um, there's a large native population, but um, you know there there's also mostly non-natives who are you know in in government in the state, and it still feels very divided. I know that this is a massive historical event, and everyone should know about it, just like everyone should know about the Civil War. But explain. You were talking to me earlier about the Trail of Tears. I think we should oh, at least yeah, talk yeah. about it. 
Yeah. So, well, my ancestors walked the Trail of Tears, and uh, basically, um, between 1838 and 1839, uh, President Andrew Jackson pushed people out of the Southeast. Um, they were removed from their uh, from their homes and from their land, and so soldiers pushed them out. Uh, over between 11 and 13,000. Native Americans were pushed out and um, followed, walked, uh, walked, you know, to 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 Oklahoma, which is what we call the the Trail of Tears, um, and you know that it. They then signed um, what's what are called the Dawes Rolls, uh, which you can trace your um, ancestry back to. But those are ba- it was basically a 900-mile walk. And out of those, you know, 11 to 13,000 people, about probably a quarter or so died or disappeared along the way. They walked through the, the bitter cold. There were wagons, you know, for some. But there were, you know, when you're talking about 12,000 people, many had to, to, to walk. And so, um, so... You know, when you know when they got to Oklahoma, they they then signed the rolls, and so you can trace your ancestry back uh, if they're, um, you know, the sign if they sign the rolls uh, to to help you uh, determine, um, you know, your lineage. Well, speaking of people who might have wanted to make a visit there that have been in the news recently. <laughs> um, <laughs> Elizabeth Warren, (laughs) who is from Oklahoma, but somehow ended up being a senator from Massachusetts, uh, has apparently spent a large portion of her life saying that she was part Cherokee and then recently had a DNA test designed to prove that she was a member of the Cherokee Nation. And this did not go over well. Um, And she apologized just recently to the Cherokee Nation for having done what she did. Uh, I wondered if you'd been following this. A little bit, um, you know. I'm not a again. I, I you know I don't want to be. A, I'm not a voice for the for the Cherokee Nation by any means. You know, um, I'm a voice for myself, but I'm a citizen of the Cherokee Nation. So I think that it's great. I think it's great that she um, called. I think she called Chief Baker, right? Is that right? And, and apologized, um, but she didn't apologized publicly did she wasn't it just a i'd have to look at the news story we can check on it i know that she called i don't yeah yeah, i don't think she made i don't think she made a public apology which is a little concerning Uh uh-huh um you know and and it also you know the, the the problem i think that a lot of people have is that you can't just you know, say, well, I've got X amount in my blood, and therefore I am, you know, a citizen of the Cherokee Nation. And you should go, and like I said, um, you know, look up. It's it's about you know finding your ancestry and and um, culture. You know, living in the culture, and uh, so I, you know. Um, yeah, it's that's it's that's too bad for her, I think. Yeah. You're right, she did apologize only privately. Yeah, that's what I was uh, thinking. Well, maybe she'll I don't know, it took her didn't it take her a long time to do the private apology 
I don't yes. know. <laughs> yeah. So it may <laughs> take her. <laughs> it it may take her a long time to do the public about. I don't know. I have no idea. <laughs> I think it's I think it's great. Any apology is you know is um, uh, by me. I you know I'm very welcomed. If um, but you know uh, uh, again I you know that's I I'm. I'm not a, a voice of authority by any means. To your point about not being a voice for all Cherokee, I certainly take that point. I think that um, we try in general not to not to have people speak for their groups. Um, right. The show, and certainly, I and certainly I have been asked to do that and find it um, yeah. find it problematic. So we won't we won't do that to you. Um, right. Okay. I think we're just in, we're just interested in what you think. Um, yeah. Yeah. One of the things I loved about this book was the complicated and surprising way it dealt with the foster care system, which we've talked about a little bit already. Um, but I think for the most part, people popularly conceive of the foster care system as an unmitigated disaster, and, and, and it has real problems, as you were talking about. But in the novel, uh, the parents, Agnes and Harold, are, if not totally benevolent, then largely benign, it seemed like to me. And Rosemary and George, Sequoia's foster siblings, are complicated, but they don't seem malevolent either. Um, and at one point in the narrative, uh, this has really surprised me and I thought was a really great and interesting narrative move. Um, at one point, uh, when Sequoia is talking to his mother and he's about to find out that she's really not going to get out of prison, um, and the narrator said, and he's telling her about where he's living, and the narrator says, and it seems without irony, he says, uh-huh. I was in a good, safe place. Yeah. Am I reading that right? Yes, absolutely. I mean, um, he... You know that I, I he is in a in a good safe place, yeah. right? I mean, because I think you know if we look at, we're looking at you know early in the book we see some some of the sort of backlashes when before his mother was locked up and you know, the sort of home life. You know, there was a boyfriend that was abusive. Um, you know, there were some guy there were some parties and and cocaine around kids. You know, and and he never felt safe in that environment. And uh, so even though there is, you know, this placement in non-native uh, foster families, doesn't mean it's not safe. You know, it's a safe environment. Even though um, Harold and Agnes Trout are have their own shortcomings as foster <laughs> parents. I right? like it that Harold's a bookie. That cracks me up. I liked that part of his character yeah. in certain ways. He's- He's a bookie, you know, but you know, they, they, you know, they sort of fake being Baptists a little bit, you know, and and you know they, t- um, but in the end, they're try, I, you know, they 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 try to connect, um, and you know, we're we're, uh, uh, Harold is is, you know, trying to connect with with uh, with Sequoia, and um, so. Uh, there's kind of an inside joke that, you know, he, Sequoia says, well, Harold, you know, um, tried to build a teepee with me, right? You know, to, which, the, ins- <laughs> the inside joke is Cherokees, <laughs> Cherokees didn't live in teepees, right? So, you know, but that there was that um, stereotype, that generalization again, you know, that um, I think is, is, you know, we, we have in society and, you know, uh, Maybe I should mention this earlier, but you know, I mean, we have this president who says these horribly racial, uh, racist things about Elizabeth Warren. You know, it's, it's um, 
you know, that, that, that's really considered a very racial slur that our president is saying about her. And, um, you know, I, I just can't believe it's 2019 and we're, you know, we're living among all this. Yeah, it's appalling. And, and, and yeah. it's not racially charged, folks. It's just racist. Um, right. That's exactly right. Yeah. I mean, it's just, yeah, it's maddening to see the ways that mainstream media has been um, papering that over and with their discomfort at calling it what it is. And I think, you know, you were also pointing to, um, you know, the mythic figures of Native Americans in um and the imagination of like not only the United States, but all over the world, there are these stereotypes. And you also talked earlier about your interest in trying out, a, you know, different kinds of voices and aesthetics and being a maximalist or minimalist. And I wonder how assembling those different tools gave you ways to subvert those, those stereotypes. Mm. Yeah. I, I mean, I, it may have been that, you know, it, all that was avoiding talking about what I, all the early writing was avoiding talking about what I really wanted to talk about, maybe. Yeah, I also think that a lot of debut novels by people from, I don't know, marginalized identities, broadly speaking, right, when people read something that they can attribute to autobiography or think they can attribute to autobiography, sometimes that elevates the work and gets it more attention, and sometimes it's a way of dismissing it. Mm -hmm. And... I almost wonder if this had been your first book and if people had been writing about it and saying, you know, Brandon Hobson's debut, how the conversation might have been different simply from that perception. And I'm, I mean, I'm so happy that it found such a um, such a wide audience. And also, I think, you know, probably I'm, I'll be curious about whether um, to hear you know, do people who love this book, you know, they go they must be going back to your backlist also. And um, I I. Some are. I've gotten some requests, but you know, all the those books are such a small print run that there aren't. I mean, they're all out of print, and you know, um, you can't really find them. So occasionally, and I, you know, I've been like sending them to, you know, people who, you know, um, were are nice enough to say, hey, I really like your work, I, <laughs> but I can't. I, and, and I always say, okay, well, this, you know, this, I've I've got a copy or something, but, you know, but um, I. Yeah, I, I mean, part of that is the publishing world, right? I mean, isn't they're just more most interested in, you know, the the big publishers are all about. Uh, I was never interested in, in that in the beginning. Um, you know that I my those books um, have no picture of me on them, and in fact, there's no biographical data about me at all. There's no bio. My it, all those books only have my name on them, and they don't have um, any picture or anything about my life. And I wanted it that way. Um, so those those books, until this one, in fact, and with Where the Dead Sit Talking, I really didn't want my picture in there at all, and I wanted very, very little about me. Um, not because I'm embarrassed about my life or anything like that, or where I live. It's 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 because, you know, I want the work to stand for itself and. You know, um, but I think publishers are interested in, you know, you know, um, how do we sell as many books? It becomes more about, you know, marketing than, right? Which is the argument that a lot of times that smaller press will have a lot more interesting books. Yeah. 
you know i mean no uh, i look i i, I yeah. completely agree i feel i call it the terry gross uh factor you know like <laughs> the being, only way to understand being, a book is that if the person actually experienced every single thing that happened in it and then that's not really generally what fiction writers do right but that all that being said if if I got a big book deal on my next book, I would not complain, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, we hope you do, Brandon, because this well, uh, thanks, uh, uh, where, where the Dead Sit Talking is an excellent book, and we hope everyone will go and read it, and we thank you for being on the show with us. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you, uh, you having me. Thanks so much. That's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. This podcast is produced by Ann Knigendorf. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. Please go give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts if you haven't done it yet. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast page is listed under the Lit Hub Radio tab. We'll also post that show page with links to the books we referenced this week on Facebook at FNF Pod, on Twitter at FNF Talk on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. You can find video of our interviews at our own Fiction Nonfiction Podcast YouTube channel and IGTV channel and on our website at fnfpodcast.net where our back episodes are grouped by topic areas. Happy reading!